Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and we're here at the legendary Friars Club in New York City. Our guest this week is a writer, actress, producer, monologist. I I knew I was gonna fuck up monologist. You got it. Yeah, yeah. I just I I got scared. An internet radio host. She was a producer on the Green Room with Paul Provenza and host the Kelly Carlin show on Sirius XM Radio. She's also the only child of arguably the greatest stand-up comedian in the history of the meeting. <laughs> I in the history. Should I do this whole shit over again? Start again. Yes. Wow. Sorry. It's gonna be long. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was so amazing. Did you have? You should have brought a change of clothes. I actually have a change. That's all good. Taken in stages. Yes. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and we're here at the famous Friars Club in New York City. Our guest this week is a writer, actress, producer, monologist, and internet radio host. She was a producer on The Green Room with Paul Provenza and hosts The Kelly Carlin Show on Sirius XM Radio. She's also the only child of arguably the greatest stand-up comedian in the history of the medium, the legendary George Carlin. Her one-woman show and her new book are entitled A Carlin Home Companion, Growing Up with George. Please welcome the only guest we've ever had with a master's degree in Jungian psychology, other than maybe Shecky Green. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Kelly Carlin. I'm going to need to talk to Shecky about that yes. stuff. Yeah. I had no He's idea. Much more intellectual than you would. <laughs> wow, yes. I'm blown away right yeah. now. Shecky. Yeah, you always think of him <laughs> as an alcoholic getting beaten up by the mob. Yeah, but <laughs> and driving his car into a fountain. Yeah. in yeah. Vegas. That's what you think, but you're so wrong. That's why he went into Jungian psychology. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the last time I think we spoke was at the tribute. No, we were na- we were naming the street. Yes, they last were year the they street. were naming the street. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Up on the Upper West Side, yeah. my dad grew up on 121st between uh, Broadway and Amsterdam. But the city, the church wouldn't let us put the sign on that block because the church is there. So we had to go across the street, you know, so, whatever. So are you basically lying where he grew no, up? Or no, no, not technically because uh, as my uncle, his brother, Patrick, said, um, yeah, we used to get high on all these corners. So, <laughs> And a shout out to our pal Kevin Bartini, who yes. worked so hard to make that happen. Uh, th- I mean, really, yeah. it, it's all because of Kevin. Yes. Uh, it would have not have happened. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Love him. And and I remember uh, uh, I was on a plane one time, and I'm getting on the plane, 
And I see George Carlin sitting there a few seats down. And, you know, I I didn't want to bother him. I just sat in my chair. And I see him get up from his chair and walk directly over to me. And my heart's pounding, (laughs) thinking, oh, George Carlin wants to talk to me. And and he he says to me very quietly, uh, yeah, I'm going to be uh, working on some stuff. I have to read some things and write some stuff out. And then I'm going to take a nap so I can't. Uh, <laughs> oh, Gilbert. So, so basically your father told me to go fuck myself. Oh, my God, Gilbert. That <laughs> is so my dad. <laughs> this man had an obsession with controlling his time. <laughs> And yeah. that's what he was doing. He like, like had a, a plan. Strike. He had a plan yeah. for the plane ride, right. and he was like, "Oh shit! Now there's a comic on board. He'll want to talk. He'll want to talk comedy or whatever. <laughs> and now I just have to let him know that I can't do that <laughs> because I'm slightly OCD. And oh my god, God bless Daddy. Be- because I I remember thinking. Had he just stayed in his fucking seat and not come over, I wouldn't have you cared. Wouldn't have bothered him, right? Yeah, yeah. But now, now I'm like, like uh, hurt <laughs> for the rest of the flight, and I'm sitting there feeling miserable totally. for a six-hour flight from LA to New York. I feel horrible. Oh my god! Did you tell me he gave you his info though, his uh, phone yes, number that I, you carried yes. around in your wallet? Uh, he he did at when it was getting near the end of the flight yes. when they announced they'd be making their descent. He he got up and walked over to me and handed me a piece of paper with his phone number. Yeah, and said, "Next time you have something airing on television, I want you to call me and tell me because I want to see what's going on in that mind of yours." He loves you. He loved you. Isn't that nice? Absolutely. Well, and that was the that was the sincere generous part of my dad with comics he did he did that with comics that he loved and he loved connecting with them and he wasn't a very social creature as you could see (laughs) but he would have these moments where you know and uh and i do know that he was a big fan of yours so so there and i feel horrible because there's a few people whose numbers i've gotten over the years Mm -hmm. and like a few of them one or two I called, and I was always disappointed when something happened, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like when when a girl uh, gives a guy a number, and she goes, call me, call me. Here's my number, and here's my cell number. And then you call, and she goes, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I've had that with celebrities. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel horrible that I never called George Carlin and Jonathan Winters gave me his number, and I never called him oh, either. Oh, Gilbert. Wow, that's and, a bummer. And yeah. Norman Fell, right? Norman Fell, also. <laughs> wow. How and, did you not call Norman yeah, Fell? He's, I, yeah, he's a I signature do. part of your act. Yeah, I wanted to. <laughs> but I, I, I had these other incidents where I called, and mm. I felt like, oh, God, maybe... Maybe they just felt like you're supposed to give someone your number. Well, no, that wasn't my my dad, certainly not him. But uh, I really wish you'd called Jonathan because once Jonathan gets your phone number, he call. I, I, I had the pleasure <laughs> of finding this out. Was I saw like oh someone from Santa Barbara's calling? Didn't know who they were. Pick up the phone, and Jonathan's in character doing the bit, and you have to jump in immediately and be a character <laughs> with him. And improvise for 10 to 20 minutes a bit. 
the whole time you're thinking, oh my God, I'm fucking improvising with Jonathan Winters right. on the phone right now. It's <laughs> a cool thing. Yeah. <laughs> Was it Paul? We had Paul Williams and Tracy Jackson on the show, and they were telling us that, that uh, toward the end of his life, Jonathan Winters would just stand in the, in the neighborhood, yes. and just do bits yes. for passersby. Yeah, yeah. Just draw them in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that's what he and did. Then I had heard a story that uh, um, uh, a Cheech Marin uh, used to go to this one supermarket, and he would see Jonathan Winters. Uh, going up and down the aisles, talking in different voices <laughs> and being different characters, wow. and yeah. then he would have to walk over to him and go, I, "You know, I think you should just buy something and go home." <laughs> <laughs> wow! Bless his heart, as they say. Love Jonathan. And, but, go ahead, and I remember, I guess the last time I saw your father was at. We were just talking about this. The, the, the Legends of Vegas, which. Yes. Which they should have done for TV. They must have been done it for TV, I'm thinking. Why else would they have done it? it was it a fundraiser? No, I don't think no, so. Exactly. It was like Larry King was yeah. the MC, and your father and Jerry Lewis and Norm Crosby, Shaggy Green, yes. the Jungian psychologist, <laughs> yes. and I think Phyllis Diller. Yeah. And I mean... It, yeah, and I remember too. Uh, you, when, when I saw your father there, he uh, he gave me a very friendly hello and kissed me on the cheek. There you go. Yeah. See. So I should have called him. You should have praise yeah. from Caesar. Yeah. You should have called him. And speaking of Bartini and the the dedication of the street, uh, there was a club. There was a show that followed that. Yes. And I believe the man sitting across from me, my co-host. Okay. Can, can I just say, <laughs> yes. Yes. Gilbert? Really, that night, I mean, it was wonderful. We were all up there, and everyone was getting up and do their stuff. And you got up there, and, oh, my God, I still love you. I, I, <laughs> first of all, I don't think I had laughed that hard since my father died. And you got up there, and, um, oh, my God, it was so beautiful. Talked about all the reasons why you were happy he was dead. <laughs> and... I'm crying. I'm doubled over laughing so hard. And for about the first minute or so, the audience was not sure what yes. to do. <laughs> oh. But once I think they saw me laughing as hard as I was, they relaxed a bit. My dad would have loved that bit. It was because it was it was perfectly you. And it was taking advantage of this earnest could be sappy earnest moment that you just love to stick a huge stick into <laughs> and you never stopped you went on i wasn't there but i heard about it and on and on and on and it got more and more ludicrous and insane yeah i kept talking about how i want i was praying that your father suffered till the oh, end suffered horribly and was praying to god to kill him <laughs> Pure genius. And I remember both what, what touched me is both you and, and your Uncle Pat. Yeah. Uh, both said the same thing, that George would have loved that. Absolutely. And, 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 and like, thank you profoundly for, for, for doing the thing, for crossing the line oh, and, for, all, for all of us, you know? And that's uh, – it's funny that you mention that because – uh, I've in interviews uh, for the many times I've gotten in trouble. By the many times you've crossed the line. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you're talking about? 
not me. I'm Red no, Skelton. Oh, you're fine. <laughs> uh, I, I always said, well, George Carlin said, well, can you, you want to say the line? Uh, uh, no, you say it. Okay. I'm like totally spacing. Oh, yeah. It's the duty of the comedian to find out where the line is drawn and deliberately cross over it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and knowing that you're going to you're going to take people across the line with you and they won't even know it has happened at some point. And and as long as they're laughing, most of them will be like, "Oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would yes. be." You know? It's because you give them permission. And uh yeah, so crossing the line was everything to my dad. Absolutely. And you uh Certainly, uh, hold that torch high. <laughs> That's a nice way of saying. <laughs> I'm a nice person, Gilbert. Yes. I'm a nice person. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting because of crossing the line. Like your father was a big fan of the Mox Brothers. Yeah, and the Ritz Brothers too. Oh yeah, yeah, yep. huge fan of both. Yeah, the Ritz Brothers too. Yeah. Oh yeah, he. You know, my dad had such a. It was such a great education growing up with him because. He loved all kinds of comedy. Not, you know, he loved yeah. pure slapstick, goofy, silly shit, and the most subversive stuff you know you could imagine. So, I mean, Otto and George, huge fan. He turned oh, me God. on to Otto oh, and yeah. George. Oh, the best. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad you, you know. brought that up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the uh, best. So, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, he. Uh, it was. It was. A, it was a real. It was always fun when my dad would turn me on to a comic, you know, because because it was a certain angle of it that he couldn't do or that they were doing mining so well that they were representing that whole part of comedy, you know? Because so. I remember um, uh, Roger Ebert was said his father used to take him to Marx Brothers movies mm. and he would give him like a wink and a smile at certain things they said like... You you see how see how they pushed it there? You see how they Yep. They uh they got away with something there? Well, and they were like Shakespeare because you know, there's the higher level conversation they're having and then there's the slapstick stuff for the groundlings. Right. You know, right. so that's what they were they were why they were so brilliant. There's Groucho's comedy which is very intellectual and very verbal and Harpo's yeah. physical. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, it's so funny you mentioned Otto and George, which is which was an act. And for for the, our listeners that don't know Otto and George, find it Please. immediately. Yeah. We Please. lost we lost Otto, I think, last year. Yeah, which but was George terribly sad. George, George is in a home. I guess technically we lost George too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there was a story. I don't know if it's apocryphal at all about somebody. Uh, you've heard this about an audience member getting so angry that he attacked the dummy. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> But that was taking filth to an art form, much in the way that your dad could do. Yeah. Could, could, just, could just something like Mongolian clusterfuck, that l- wonderful list that he reads at the end of Carlin at Carnegie. Yes, yes. Which is, again, I urge people to find it. It's, it's just wonderful. Now, can you say the seven words, the seven words that weren't allowed by the FCC that you judged did a famous bit? Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> And if you're going back to class clown, tits shouldn't even be on the list. Of course right. not. <laughs> and then he added uh, fart, turd, and twat. Correct. Yes. Yes. Correct. Yes. But but the end of Carlin at Carnegie, which is a, which you should go back and revisit. Yeah. He pulls out this this list like a scroll. A scroll. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
a scroll. And, and takes that idea, takes that, that tried and true bit and just turns it on his ear and does what? Another 200? Yeah. And that's so long that he's reading them during the credit during roll. During the credit roll. And then we ended up selling a, a poster with, I think, over a thousand of them on the poster. It's eventually. absolutely brilliant. And, and he had that great line that really explains censorship on TV where he said, uh, you can prick your finger, but you can't finger right. your pricks. It, it's, it's, <laughs> and it's poetry. I mean, he would do absolutely. it in that poetic way. Yeah, absolutely. It says it all. And and you said in the book that uh, when your father would ask his mother uh, 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 what a certain word meant. Yes. She, she would make him go. My, my grandmother, Mary Beery Carlin, uh, she would make him go and look it up in the dictionary. And my dad told told this story many times. And so one day <clears throat> he uh, went to look up a word or – no, she had oh, – oh, what the hell's the word? Um, he, he, he looked up a word and he had used it at breakfast and – oh, well, OK. Hold on. I got to get the story now. I didn't think we were going to uh, edit. We'll do an edit. Um, OK, wait. So the word was peruse. No. The word was what the hell's the word? <laughs> is it in here? Is it in Hendra's book? It's in Hendra's book for sure. Wait, Grandma. Oh, cursory glance. Okay, okay, okay. okay cursory so, all right. glance. So, so my grand, so my, so my dad heard the word peruse and wanted to know what it meant. So my grandmother, Mary Beery Carlin, told him to go look it up in the dictionary, and he was very excited. And she would always ask him to like you know use it in a sentence or whatever. So he was very excited, and he comes down to breakfast. And uh, he says, uh, <clears throat> so, Mom, have you perused the newspaper this morning? And she says to him, why, no, I haven't give it, given it a cursory glance. <laughs> <laughs> and, one, and so he, like, had to go march back to the dictionary and look up the word cursory. That was his mother. That's the sharp mind she had. She could tell a story also, do all the characters and all of that. And that was a woman who very much fed him and, and fed his obsession with language. And your father almost wasn't born. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is very true. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Grandma Mary was at the abortion clinic, which was a very nice place. It was Dr. Sunshine at Gramercy Park, <laughs> where all the ladies went to get taken care of. And she's sitting in the waiting room, and she's reunited with my father's father, Patrick. And uh, they've had a uh, they had a torrid one night one day stand at Rockaway Beach Motel. <laughs> they had been separated. It's so romantic. Yes, very romantic. I always picture sand involved for some reason. <laughs> and she's sitting in the waiting room, and uh, she looks up at the <laughs> at a picture of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> oh, she thought it was a sign, and sees right. her mother's face. Right. Right. In the picture and saw it as a sign right. and got up and looked at Patrick and said, I'm keeping this child and walked out of the office. Yeah, because I saw an online interview with your dad and he's talking about luck. Yeah, and what, what, that was the first p- bit yeah, of luck right there. What a there. role luck played in his career. Yeah. The, the, the HBO comes along just yep. at the right time. Uh, you know, that's a, the perfect vehicle for his comedy, but even his life itself. Yeah, absolutely. Started out with a series of yeah. fortunate... But I was also thinking, reading that story was that... That's the kind of story your father would have heard and thought, oh, what a piece. 
piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, like she saw the Virgin Mary. Yeah, <laughs> and yet, and that's that's the beautiful irony of it. Yes. You know, here's a man who dismantled the Ten Commandments, and yet the Virgin Mary saved his life. Yes, it's, it's so beautiful. I- it's, ironic. It's so beautiful. So tell us, and Gilbert and I were talking about a million things, and we've got so many cards here, and so many things we could cover. We're talking about Jack Burns before you came in, and so many different parts of your dad's career. But it's safe to say, and we both read the book, it's safe to say you did not have a conventional childhood. Safe to say. Yeah. T- tell us about, I mean, you could start, tell us about the first time your mom sat you down in front of the TV to see yes. Dad. Yes. Mom was so excited because, you know, Dad had been doing a little bit of TV here and there. And so I was born in 63. So by about 65, Dad was getting rolling, and I think he did The Tonight Show at that point with Carson. He'd already done it er- very early on with Parr, with, with Burns. Um, but there was a Tonight Show, and there was you know some Merv Griffins and things like that that were happening. Whatever it was, I don't know what the show was, but my mother was very excited. I was old enough to understand Daddy's out doing work or whatever. Live TV, of course. Mm-hmm. And she plops me down in front of the TV, and the announcer says, and here's George Carlin. And this little four-inch man comes up on this screen, and it's my dad's voice coming at me. And I freak out. I am convinced he is stuck inside the little box. I love that. And I go, where's my daddy, my daddy? Didn't go over well. No. <laughs> See, that sounds like you were on acid as a kid. <laughs> Aren't all kids on acid? Yeah, right. <laughs> and gradually you got used to the idea that he was. I did. Yes, gradually yeah. I did. Yeah. I absolutely understood that. Yes. That, yeah. that <laughs> but it's to, to, to capture some of what the book, I mean, most of what the book is about, it's a, it's a very, uh, safe to say, use the word tumultuous. Yes. Childhood. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, it's a little like you growing up in Days of Wine and Roses. Yeah, a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, and yet if, you know, all of us out there who have, uh, you know, uh, alcoholic or, or addict parents or any kind of a dysfunctional uh, childhood, that would be 99% of us, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but it was the times too, uh, you know, the cultural, the shift, the cultural shift really did shape what was going on in my family. And, you know, here my dad was a kid who had smoked pot since he was 14 on the streets of New York, Um, you know, straight-laced comic, getting all the success, doesn't feel true to himself. You know, on the on the inside, he's he's hanging out with all of his rock and roll friends. They're all getting to speak the truth on stage. My dad realizes he's entertaining the parents of the people he wants to be hanging out with, and he, you know, he finally finds his true voice, and that's seventy seventy one, and then you know, it's the early seventies, and the drugs were insane, and that's how everyone shared their love back then. You know, here's a here's a packet of this, here's that, here's a joint, and. You know, my dad comes from a, a solid Irish upbringing. His dad was a, you know, a raging alcoholic. So there were some years there, about age seven to twelve, especially with my between my mother's very serious alcoholism that almost killed her, and my dad's cocaine addiction. There was some 
fucked up shit in my household going on, you know. But the but the thing about it is, and the thing I really wanted to talk about in this book and really portray is that no matter what, we loved each other and we knew that, and that got us through, and and that ultimately saved the day. So even though there was a lot of chaos. There was a foundation of of real love. The three musketeers. The three that musketeers that my dad my yeah. dad called us. It's yeah. touching. One of the people, not surprisingly, who discovered your father was Lenny Bruce. Yes, Lenny got my dad his first uh, manager, Murray Becker, who managed all those guys. And uh, yeah, Lenny saw my dad and told Murray Becker about him, and Lenny would tell club owners, uh, you know, you should hire this guy and. Lenny was, you know, a god to my father. Yeah, I mean, well, he was the original of, like, getting in trouble. Well, yeah, or, and I, I mean, I tell the story in my solo show um, about how, and I think I tell it in the book, too, about how in 1961 when Lenny was arrested in Chicago, both my parents were there. They were just married, and the cops were asking – the cops were trying to hassle the club owner about underage drinking. So they were asking for everyone's ID, and they asked my dad for his ID, and my dad and his typical – uh, wanting to cooperate with the police, say, I don't believe in identification. Hmm. And they promptly threw him in the back of the paddy wagon with Lenny. When my dad told Lenny, proudly told Lenny what he had just done, Lenny looked at him and said, what are you, a schmuck? <laughs> <laughs> and my mom chased that paddy wagon by foot all the way to the precinct and and bailed him out of jail that night. So my mom and dad and Lenny had a, a fun relationship. Yeah, people talk about them a lot in the same thought. Yep. Well, and it makes perfect same, sense. Yeah. I mean, without Lenny Bruce, there is no George Carlin. So, so did uh, they? I guess they knew Lenny toward the end. Yeah. In fact, my dad visited him the day before he died. Ooh. Yeah, and they were shocked by all of that too, but and really pissed off about you know what the cops did and all that stuff. So. Yeah, because for anyone who doesn't know, he was actually. He was getting in trouble for obscenity, yes. I guess, in the 50s. And, and religion and talking about and, the church, yeah. yes, too. Right. I mean, that's, so, a big part of it was that. And, and he was actually getting arrested for it. Yeah, he would just wear his trench coat on stage uh, because he knew he didn't want to lose his coat. So he would wear his trench coat on stage knowing that they were going to arrest him on stage and that they would just take him away and they wouldn't let him get his own stuff. So, yeah. Another piece of lucky timing for your dad, in a way, because he came along just a little bit after. Yep. Yep. And things had relaxed a tick. A, a tick. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Where he wasn't going to be thrown in jail right. for talking about religion. Uh, except and things for that, in Milwaukee. Except for Milwaukee. <laughs> right, of course. Now, now, here's a point in your book that, that hit me. And I remember as a kid listening. I used to listen to the radio a lot. And there was, I think, BAI at that point was like a kind of – hippie kind of Pacifica station. Network. Yeah. Absolutely. Very hippie. And I remember hearing a song, maybe I heard it once, and it stuck in my head. And I thought, am I the only one familiar with this song? Until I was reading your book. And the song, uh, pardon me if my Native American's a little rusty, Wichita, ta, give me ra, oranika, oranika, hey, nay, hey, nay, ora. All that spring spirit going round my head yes. makes me feel glad that I'm not. Dead Wichita, ta, give me ra, oranica, oranici, no, I, no, I, yeah, yes. 
I sing it in my solo show. It's you do? A, yeah, I do a whole scene around it. Unbelievable. Oh, Gilbert, Unbelievable. that's so funny. That's so Pacifica. Yes. You're a regular I, Buffy St. Yeah. Marie. I heard that. Oh, my God. Provenza <laughs> is going to shit that you just sang that to me. You were listening to BAI in those days? Yeah, I was listening to everything. Why not? Yeah, I had no life. When I wasn't watching TV, I was listening to the radio. (laughs) Listening to Native American songs. Boy, until, and then I saw it in the book, and I just saw one word, I said, I know that song. You know he wow. sings on every song on yes. every show. Kelly. I did not so know. That. I got my chance. Got to his, thank he, God. He, yes, I, I I gave you that opportunity. If, wow. If you can only find a way to print some Paul Williams numbers. I, I can do my <laughs> Paul Williams. Oh my God! Yes. I'm blown away right yeah. now. <laughs> I was not expecting that out of your mouth. Because <laughs> you said you were at camp. Yeah. And they right. used to sing it. Yeah, they sang it to me. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God! There's some other stuff, and I don't want to talk too much about the substance abuse, but it's it's in, it's in your show. It's in it's in the book. Well, and it's part of what built our the you know the the foundation. Yeah. Of, I mean, the, you know, the book is really about the father daughter relationship mostly, but it's about the whole family, and then it's about me finding my way sure towards myself. So you know, I mean, it's 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 part of my story. Absolutely, I didn't want to go to Oprah. On you, it's okay. But the, 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 you should at least tell Gilbert the son, the the, okay. the son story right. so, because it's so it's such a wonderful story. So we, um, so we're first of all, we've been in Hawaii on a Hawaiian vacation that did not go well. My parents like were brandishing knives at each other; they were trying to kill each other. <laughs> I, I end up having to get them to sign a. I write out what I call a UN style peace treaty to get them to calm down during the vacation. So the vacation has been rather not vacationy. The very next day we come home from vacation, my dad walks into my room, wakes me up and says, Kelly, I have something important to tell you. I was convinced it's we're getting divorced. I mean, it has to be because they've been trying to kill each other for the last year. Instead, my father says to me, Kelly, I think the sun has exploded and we have about seven minutes to live. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And, you know... Well, you're, it's your dad, you know? <laughs> I mean, I knew he'd been doing a lot of drugs. He'd probably been up for four days. But when your dad's your dad, you think, well, maybe we should go and check. And <laughs> and so we did. We went outside and checked. And I have to tell you, when we got outside, the sun, it was one of those L.A. smoggy. This is the 70s when L.A. was really smoggy. It was one of those L.A. smoggy days. And the sun was really bright. And it was kind of weird out. And I thought, Wow, maybe really this is happening. <laughs> and so my dad's like, you know what? We should really find out if anyone else notices that. And he was like ready to call his friend Doc in New York here from the old neighborhood. But then he says, you know what? The phenomena of the sun exploding might be different on the East Coast. So we need someone on this coast. <laughs> And so he calls his friend Joe Billardino in Sacramento and has to explain to Joe over the phone that, um, could you go outside and check and see if the sun is okay? Because I think it may have exploded. (laughs) (laughs) And being a 10-year-old kid sitting on the end of a bed, listening to your dad, having this conversation with a friend, you're thinking... Really, this this if the sun hasn't exploded, it, it doesn't matter because you know my life is over as I knew it. 
Oh my god! Was this an a-, a bad acid trip? It was no. I think he really had been up for about three or four days on cocaine. Right, and when he would stay up, he would stay up three or four days at a time. On, on I mean, at one point you found him. He would stay up organizing his albums, organizing everything, everything. You, you name it, he this, would organize. The story it. of you finding him, and is, I guess it's he's been up three or four days at this point, and he's organizing washers. Yes, washers, and- screws, nails, <laughs> putting them in sizes. <laughs> Usage. I mean, whatever it had little drawers. This little thing with little drawers. Oh yeah, he was he was slightly OCD. So any kind of organizing was just you know was his bliss. So you know, and when you're doing coke, things get tidy. Right. <laughs> and I I found out I didn't know this that your father was in a comedy team. Yeah, Burns and Carlin, Jack yeah, Burns, Burns, who ended Carlin. up who ended up replacing. Um, Oh, well, you replaced Don Knotts. Don Knotts on, on, on uh, uh, Andy yeah. Griffith's show. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Shusha, huh, 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 shusha. Burns yeah. and Schreiber. Yeah. yeah, and Burns and Schreiber. Yeah, course, I also. remember. Well, Burns and Schreiber were afterwards. Yes, they were. They were in the eighties, late seventies. Yeah, because yes. they were they were very popular. Yeah, when and, I, when and Jack I was Burns is TV. a genius. And still with us, and I can't get him to leave his house to let the world know that oh, he's a genius. We'd love to have him on. I know he's in L.A. He don't, he won't do anything. He won't do my podcast. He won't come out for anything. And he is a fucking genius. He killed at my dad's memorial. I'm like, Jack, you need to be out in the world doing this more often. You just killed up there. Yeah, I yeah. remember it's like in that, well, with him and Schreiber, it used to be like, cab, cab, taxi, cab, it's a taxi cab. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Didn't they do that kind of what, huh? What? Yeah. What? Oh, yeah. sure, sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, uh-huh. they used to do that quick, back uh-huh. and forth. Yeah, yeah. Avery, people yeah. would know, maybe yeah. audiences yeah. would know Avery Schreiber because I think he became the Doritos guy yeah. later. Right. He had a he series did. of Doritos That's commercials right. where yeah. he would bite big, the chip. Bushy big, haired guy. Yeah, he would bite the chip. But Jack Burns, then again, to our listeners, look him up because just he had a great career. He and, did that, and look up the, the early Burns and Carlin stuff. It's, it's out there on, right. you know. Kind of Irish New England. Very accent. Irish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, they met in, if I have my my stories right. They met in uh, a radio station in Boston. I believe so, yeah, because my dad had stolen the radio truck to go score uh, weed right, in, right. in New York that's City, right. and they both got fired right. or something. I don't know. That's crazy. Now, was it Jack Burns who produced uh, Fridays? Fridays. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, he, was, he had the famous Andy Kaufman incident. Oh, yes. With a fake kind of... Yeah. Jack Burns, look him up. Yeah, please. And tell Gilbert. And I don't want to. I don't want to dwell on the. Uh, uh, it's just. But you uh, keep dwelling on. Well, yeah. what is it? he apologizes <laughs> and then he does because it. it's so riveting. The it's s- kind of like saying to someone, "Hey, I never do this." <laughs> yeah. I'm just fascinated you're so by it. Cute. You're 12, and you're having. Thank you for saying that. You're 12, and and you're having a conversation with Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, uh, yes. This is sort of another inappropriate. So, um, so we mom gets sober. Yay! Yeah. She doesn't die. <laughs> She almost fucking died. She gets sober, so we go to we go to Hawaii for Christmas, and we stay at the Kahala Hilton. You know, very fancy Hollywood place back in the seventies. And when we arrive, we realize that Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet are doing the the New Year's Eve show, and Sammy Davis is part of it too. And of course, Dad knows all of them from Vegas and all those places. So now, you know, we're, we get to sit and have dinner with Steve and Edie and Sammy. We have dinner and then they do the show and everything like that. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's schmaltzy, but it's great at the same time. Yeah. So we're, at the end of the show, we're all we're at some kind of party, whatever, and Dad's talking to Sammy. And I'm standing there with Dad between Sammy and Dad. And they're talking about Coke and how, like, just how what a horrible drug it is and how my mom was sober now. And, and Dad's, you know, walking away from it. And Sammy's like, yeah, man, it really took me over, too, and everything like that. 
And there I was, you know, it was 75, so I was about 12, and I'm standing there, and as if it was perfectly normal to have a 12-year-old part of this conversation, but I felt like it, because even though I had never snorted cocaine, it was like, I really understood the insanity of the drug, because I just watched my parents almost kill each other with it for four years, it you know? occur to your dad or Sammy Davis Jr. at any point to say, you know, maybe the, maybe we should walk away from the 12-year-old. No, no yeah, darling. Maybe we should get her an ice no, cream. No, it's 1975. Ah. That we didn't, you know, there was no boundaries in 1975. Yeah, and and of course later, and this is the last I'll say about it, but I'm leading to a place that I know Gilbert will care about. Late later, you had you developed your own. I, I developed my own um, uh, liking of that particular drug, and uh, because I uh, met a well, you know, I experimented and had fun in high school. Of course, I went to a very cool hip high school in in Santa Monica called Crossroads where this was at the time where you could get a, a note from your parents because you know to smoke cigarettes it was back in those days and uh so yeah I uh, I experimented in high school and then I met I met an older man I was 18 he was 29 and he was very much into the cocaine and I I fell into a large baggie of it for a few years myself so I think it'd be disappointing in a way if the daughter of George Carlin didn't do a little right. of that. It turned out to be uh, right? Marsha Brady. Yeah, yeah, that would have, yeah, exactly. And during one of these these lost moments of your life, you wind up, uh, and I, I have no uh, fear about bringing this up because it's in the book, you, you wind up uh, falling into bed with a, a teen idol. Oh, yeah, that was in high school. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so I went to Crossroads. There was a lot of famous people famous people's kids who went there and still do and we all you know hung out with all sorts of Beverly Hills High and all those stuff and we had all the money in the world uh, access to everything and zero responsibility our parents just gave us cars and money and I shared weed with my dad I mean you know it was insane insane times so we end up um I end up in a bad relationship with a boy who is not nice to me and is kind of emotionally and physically abusive to me and not kind of he was. This is the guy that you'd rather chase with a baseball bat. Yes, yeah. exactly. And um, <laughs> so one day we're all hanging. I'm hanging out with um, myself and I'm hanging out with uh, uh, Griffin O'Neill, uh, Ryan's son, Tatum's brother trouble right there got and i love griffin to this day and griffin's all clean and sober and great now but we were all troublemakers back then and leif garrett i ended up hanging out with leif garrett one day and uh my ex-boyfriend shows up and um i'm you know it's one of those abusive domestic violence things where you're like yes no yes no yes no with the crazy person and so i make this decision that i'm going to bed leif garrett that night <laughs> Because Sorry to lead you there, but it's so good, by, so juicy. By betting Leif Garrett, I will somehow heal myself of all of the pain of this abusive relationship and kind of. <laughs> so you weren't thinking straight. No, it was an act of great feminism, Gilbert. <laughs> I was going to put a notch in my bedpost and empower myself. And so we go out to Malibu to Ryan and Farah's house, because that's what you do. Oh, yeah. And uh, we walk in, and I see the wall of Farrah Fawcett there, and there's all these pictures of Farrah, and I'm thinking, this is a sign of even more feminine power empowerment. <laughs> Look how empowered she is. I'm empowered, too. And um, so... 
Leif and I, of course, end up doing the deed on the couch. And, um, well, we were 17 and very high. And it wasn't the most uh, fantastic sexual experience (laughs) of my life. Not that I'd had a lot to compare it to. Um, So then the next day, we wake up and we sneak upstairs into Ryan and Farrah's bed. And um, I want to say, Leif redeemed himself. And then... I'm laying there on the bed thinking, okay, how fucking surreal is this? I'm in Ryan and Farrah, Ryan O'Neill and Farrah Fawcett's bed having sex with Leif Garrett. Like, it doesn't get more surreal than that. And, and I'm and I'm George Carlin's daughter. Like, the whole package is there. And I'm thinking, this is the most surreal moment I will ever have in my life. And then 10 minutes later, we go into the bathroom to take a shower together. And I say to Leif, hand me the shampoo. And so he hands me Farrah Fawcett's shampoo, but it is actually Farrah Fawcett brand shampoo. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and so I always end the story with, so there I was washing my hair with Farrah Fawcett brand shampoo under Farrah's faucet. <laughs> That's such a great L.A. growing up a kid in L.A. story. It, it really is the perfect Celebrity story. kid. It is. Yeah. You just can't help yourself. And, and what was the story of your father chasing the guy with the baseball? Well, I, I finally told my parents what was going on, and my dad got like looked at me like, why the fuck didn't you tell me this before? And the boy showed up a few days later, and my dad went into his office and just kind of you know, put the baseball bat on his shoulder to kind of let him know. And he just told him, you know, you come near my daughter again, I'll bash your fucking head in. And for me, it was, you know, a, a profound moment because it was this like, like my dad showed up, like the dad. Yeah. It's parenting. Part. It was yeah. parenting. Yeah. yeah. Like he finally fathered me, you know, and it was, it was, you know, it was, it was a really actually a sweet moment in my life. I was thinking of a Leif Garrett song, by the way, when you were telling me that. Oh, I didn't. I put. I was made for dancing. I was made for dancing (laughs) all 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 night long. Bless your heart. And that's when I realized he wasn't. (laughs) And Gilbert, you slept with Jack Wild, right? Yes. So you have your own teen idol. (laughs) You could relate to that. Now, your father was also court-martialed. Yeah, a few times, <laughs> yes. I believe. I think if you look in his memoir, actually, Gilbert, yes. next time you're in L.A., call me up. You're coming over to my house, and I'm going to show you the archives. Because my I have I have my dad's Air Force folder, and then my dad wrote out on a list, on a specific piece of paper, where he started rank-wise, when he was promoted, and when he was demoted. And, it, and it's like this like little roller coaster ride of George Garland's military career. Yeah, he was, uh, yeah. Not big on authority. No! Famously. Thank God. Uh, yeah. Why don't we talk about, um, well, I just want to talk about, too, we, since we brought up Burns and Carlin, I mean, that, that before we move to the transformation, the, yeah. big, the big transformation. I mean, he had a busy career when he was the straight George Carlin. Sure. When he was buttoned down George Carlin. Oh, I mean, yeah. it was not only Burns and Carlin, but he was hosting. Uh, well, but he went Parr solo. He Carson. went. Yeah, he went solo pretty quickly after Burns and Carlin. Right. And then, yeah, he, he, you know, he, he got a ton. He did a ton of stuff. He did a ton of TV, and uh, he became the it guy. He was the modern hip comic, and. Uh, he, you know, he had a ton of success. He yeah. was on That Girl. He was on That Girl. He played <laughs> right. George- cast by our cast by our friend Bill Persky. Yes, who did, who yeah, did this yeah. Show. Yes. yeah, 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 yeah. Shout out to Bill. Yeah, and and your father, in early on in his career, had the Danny K plan. He did. He did. He really seriously at age 
We've discussed Nine or ten. Yeah, yeah. If you listen to the show, Danny K comes up a lot. Yeah. In the context you can imagine. So so dad's, you know, dad sat in the movies as a little kid and saw what he could do with language. Oh, yeah. You know, and all of that and the funny voices and the thing. And dad said, I want to be just like him. And and he came up with this, this career strategy at age nine. Become a DJ. Get good at that. Then become a stand-up. And then they'll let me be in the movies like Danny Kay. And it is exactly what he did. He became a DJ, and then he became a stand-up, and then he did some acting and hated it, and luckily became more a better stand-up. Yeah. But then years later, he kind of met Danny Kaye. He did, and uh, so he. Wa- it wasn't even years later yeah. when he was a little boy. Yeah. He waited out. You know, he would take. He would. You know, they'd take the subway down to Times Square and all the all the Broadway shows, and he was outside of some theater. Waiting for Danny Kay in the rain for hours to get an autograph, and Danny Kay came out and blew right past all of them. And my dad swore to himself that if I ever become famous, I will never ever do that. And my dad stopped, would bring, let anyone come in, especially young kids. If the kid came up with an album anywhere at any time, my dad stopped what he was doing and would talk to the kid, have a conversation, and sign whatever needed to be signed. And and I think he said that I think your father was watching like Danny Kay do these commercials for like UNICEF and knew what a prick he was. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, the, yeah some he sort of ambassador all- to children, yes. really. Yeah, <laughs> he was also famously good not only to fans but to comics, but to young comics. And Gary Shandling told a story about about George, your dad, giving him some feedback on some comedy material. I yes. think Lewis Black was somebody else. Lewis that he is someone else that too, he yeah. encouraged. Yeah, a, a lot of a lot of comics. Yeah. And when I met him, he was great to me. By the way, I was I met him at a, a signing at the Writers Guild uh, I, for uh, Napalm and Silly Putty. And I found out after he died that not only you know, I, I mean, I'd heard the Gary Shandling story because Gary had told it publicly, but um, uh, I had young comics, um, open mic comics who were still open mic comics, contacting me and saying, "So I was writing for the you know the college paper. I interviewed your dad. I told him I was a stand up." Um, your dad would check in with me every few months to see how my open mics were going. Wow. Yeah. See, Gilbert, you should have fucking I called know. him. You should have I called know. him. <laughs> Think of how much help he would have been. So, so all of this stuff is going on. He's doing, I was telling Gilbert before, this variety show called Away We Go yeah. with Buddy Rich and Buddy Greco, uh, and he's know, on that girl. There was some and good weed that on that Shoot. <laughs> Craft Summer Music Hall and the Hollywood Palace yes. and all the shows of all the of day them, yeah. and Joey Bishop and the Smothers Brothers and then he decides and, and the drugs are a catalyst and then he drops for acid. this. Well, you have that great line in the book where you say America was was falling America in love with George. America had fallen in love with George Carlin just in time for him to have fallen out of love with them. It's great. Yeah, he tells the story. Yeah, and so the the obviously the the, the pot and then the cocaine or, the, or maybe and, it's not cocaine at that point. No, the, no cocaine the, at the that acid. time. No, the acid really. You know, he says pot and acid, any kind of psychedelic, is a values shifter. And he realized at that point, what the hell am I doing? I am entertaining the parents of the people I'm hanging out with. My dad was in between the two generations. He was over 30 when he made the change and, um, and the shift. And, um, and yet he related to all these 20-somethings going through all that stuff. And he went to my mother. Well, he got fired twice from Vegas. And he went to my mother and he said, I can't do this anymore. And my mother had just put a deposit down on a beautiful home in the San Fernando Valley. And, you know, and but she saw the pain he was in and she said, okay, let's go for it. And, uh, and they did. 
And well, didn't he say, I'd be, I'd be happy if I just play coffee houses yeah. and colleges for the yeah. rest of my career? Yeah, yeah. So the transformation, and you say in the book, he went in for hernia surgery. Yeah, came out, had grew, grew his, did, didn't shave while he was uh, in the hospital. And he came home with a, a, a beginning of a beard and... Uh, it kind of scared me when you're a kid and your dad looks different suddenly because it was 70. I was only six or seven and, uh, and he never shaved the beard from that day forward and then started growing his hair. He'd already had those sideburns. He was kind of already faking the long oh, hair yeah, with the right, sideburns, right. you know, <laughs> right. and the little bit of length in the back, you know, but it was still short hair. It's pretty cute. And I love that he's this this line in the book. If Caesar, when he was doing the when he was still doing the straight lace comedy, and he was still button down George, and, he, and Gilbert will appreciate this. He says, "If Caesar Romero dances past me one more time in one of these clubs, because he hated playing at that point the Copa. Oh, and he got himself fired at the Copa. Yeah, the Jules Podell banging the ring. Yeah, oh god, and, and the and whole thing, lying on the stage and and reading the under the reading underneath yeah. the piano just to get fired, and the Playboy Club would not fire him no matter what. And doesn't he drive to Chicago to to meet Hef because yeah. he figures Hef is a, Hef is understands a, and right. Hef, and Hef says there's two Hef, Hef there's two Hugh Hefners, there's the Playboy and there's the businessman. Sorry. You're fired. Hef still owes us twelve hundred dollars. By really, the never paid my dad for that, and it's supposed to in the contract. Anyway, <laughs> interesting. So, so much for the Danny K plan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank God he was good at stand up. And, and then AM and FM, which is the which he which comes was out with the album, which right? Was the which old was George. brilliant because it was like here's the old George. You all know him. You remember him. This is the one side, and here's the other side. Here's the new George. I mean, what a beautiful, smart way to transition. Yeah, he ushered everybody uh, through. Yeah, the, he, through the he, he, he held their hand through it. And can you read the portion from your book? <laughs> your book of, is, of course, a Carlin home companion growing up with George. Wait a minute. I got it marked. All right. Is this the part about you? Is this the you part? Oh, yes. Oh, good. Excellent. Okay, hold on. We'll of course cut. I can. <laughs> we'll, we'll cut because I lost my spot. All right. It's in the, it's in the ashes. Uh... Hang on, Gil. Here it is. All right. Here okay. it is. All right. So, um, so just to give you a little context, um, my dad gave me 30 days to get rid of his ashes. And, of course, I knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to go to New York and spread them all over town. So, um, so here's the bit. So... <laughs> So Bob and I arrived at JFK late in the day on July 18th. After we checked into the hotel, we immediately headed downtown to the club comics to see Richard Belzer. Belzer was making a rare appearance that night and had arranged for us to see the show. As I sat there, oh, and by the way, I didn't know any comedians until my dad died. Just want to make that context. Belzer called me and said, welcome to the family. You're coming to New York. I'm going to take care of you. So that's how that happened. So as I sat there watching Belzer on stage, I was hit hard with the realization that I would never see my dad on a stage again. While everyone in the club was laughing, I was crying. After the show, we headed toward the dressing room. Before I could open the backstage door, Taylor Negron came walking out. Taylor and I had met at a spoken word gig in Los Angeles the year before. I was very fond of him. He's a great human and a fantastic writer-performer. We hugged. I knew I was home, safe and sound, with family. And that feeling grew as I made my way into the dressing room. Belzer was so lovely and kind. Then Gilbert Gottfried came out of the bathroom. (laughs) I was a huge fan, but he also made me nervous. I can't explain it, really. It feels like he's from another planet. And so I'm never sure what he's going to do or say. 
Richard introduced us, and Gilbert asked, what are you doing in New York? I'm here to spread my ashes, I said. And Gilbert said, do you have any on you now? (laughs) Now, I had put a small Ziploc bag of ashes in my purse before I left the hotel room, knowing we'd be near Greenwich Village that night, and maybe there'd be a chance to spread them at the bitter end. But I lied to Gilbert and said no. I lied because... (laughs) I really didn't know what he would do if I had said yes. (laughs) I feared he might eat them. (laughs) Gilbert then asked me, whose career is more dead, mine or George's? (laughs) Without a beat, my friend Amy said, yours, Gilbert. Everyone laughed. And I realized, yes, these were my people. That's touching. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that, that's, of course, in your new book, A Carlin Home Companion. Yes. Yep. yep. I just want to talk to you real quick about, about the second change. Uh, for for your dad, uh, because we're just we're running out of time. Yeah, yeah. There's so much to cover. I know. There's so much. First of all, there's so much to cover in the book, and y- but people get to read that. Yes, yes. <laughs> but and, and hopefully you're going to bring your show to New York. I, d- we'll I really to, I would love we'll to. to. It would be it. fantastic. But his career is so long. It's amazing. And so varied. It's, it's, and then if the, the specials themselves, you could do an hour, absolutely, and a half just on on the content there. Yeah. But but since we're talking about the big change from button down George to more radicalized George, yes. Then there's a change even later, which Gilbert and I were talking about, where if you look at Car- Carlin and Carnegie and Carlin on Campus and the early HBO specials, it's, it's, it's kind of the hippie George and then... And yeah, and the ops are very observational. observational. But then comes the turn. I guess it's jamming in New York. Is- I would say so. Even the show before that in 90, you start to see it. He starts to talk about politics in the right. one, which I think is what am I doing in New Jersey. Right. Um, but, um, but yeah, because in the 80s, you know, he kind of... Um, When he talked about that part of his career, he said, you know, given the chance to bend back around toward the middle, I took it. And he had a big tax debt. And oh, that's when he was returning to appearing on the old variety shows. But then he saw Sam Kinison and saw Sam screaming at the audience. And he realized, oh, we've lost the audience and we have to wake them up. We have to get their attention. And look at what Sam's doing. And he was very intrigued by Sam. And my dad, I didn't really realize this till later, but my dad would see st- something like that. And, 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 I'm, and maybe, Gilbert, you feel this way, too. It's like, now I have to raise the bar. Like, now, uh-oh, my game has to get better, too. And that's what happened to him. He knew his game had to get better. And he started going in this direction where he could really, really let his rage feed his comedy. And wasn't there a point that, uh, your father just kind of like became just part of the norm. Yeah, that yeah. was that was the eighties. I mean, definitely, he kind of you know he was trying to pay the bills and everything, and he uh, wanted to. I mean, he ha- he had to pay the bills, yeah. you know, yeah. and and so he was ended up doing you know like. Um, Tony Orlando and Don now, Christmas a, specials and that shit like that. Well, that's the point that he, that he sees Rick Moranis parodying him yes. on, on SCTV, yes. which must have been 
painful. Devastating right. to him. To devastating. Realizing to be, now I'm a. I now yeah now I'm being now I'm being made fun of. Or at the very least, I'm old guard. And then, so we're we're getting the rights to that for my solo show because I played on my solo show the Rick Moranis thing. So we have to find Rick Moranis. He he has the rights to all that stuff. Rick calls me up to say. I can't believe I hurt your dad's feelings. I never meant to do that. We were just joking in the room and I wanted to do him. And he had no idea what a devastating effect it wow. had. And so Rick called and talked to me for like 45 minutes about the whole thing. It was just Rick's very sweet man. Yeah, re- pretty much retired from the business at this point, I believe by the so, way. Yeah. Yeah. So in Jammin' in New York and the one before it, in New- the, what am I doing in New Jersey? I mean, the full social critic, the social and political critic shows up Emer- yeah merges yeah. and it's a it's a different george carlin for I mean, sure and the jam and show was my dad's favorite show and i believe it is probably one of the most perfectly crafted bits of hour of comedy well ever. it's got the it's got the the stuff that you're used to and the and the airline stuff and yeah. and, and and the languages and did you know do you ever do the moving train bit yep. and all the observational yeah. stuff but but it opens up with an attack on on bush uh, yeah yeah uh, and reagan's gang i think yeah. was the name reagan's of the bit gang. yeah yeah, yeah. And, and all of the uh, criminals that were in reagan's cabinet and how none of these people are in jail or, or, or a lot of them did get indicted and yeah he went right for it and the gulf i mean this is you know this is gulf war uh, you know territory and all of that so yeah it was it was thrilling to watch it was a thrilling moment for me to watch because nobody was doing anything like that and he was taking he was stepping over that line we talked about earlier and yet doing it with his normal deftness his poetry um but now there was you know, we had all survived the 80s somehow, and he was he was speaking that rage that we had all been keeping in for 10 years, and he was just letting it go. It was beautiful. Do you, it's funny that you asked Gilbert that before. Did you ever, the Kinnison uh, analogy, did you ever find in your journey or in all the years you've been doing stand-up that the audience, you had to turn the act a little more extreme? To get oh. people to, to keep people's attention. Yeah, I I notice that each time I go on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I knew from his expression where he was going. At. I mean, when you started, you were doing impressions. Yeah, but the yeah. act became more and more outrageous. Oh yeah, was that to satisfy you or to keep people's? Yeah, I have no idea. I, I've never like 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 I told you about that line. It's the duty of the comedian. Mm-hmm. I always said what appealed to me about that is he said duty. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was never that intellectual. <laughs> Oh, man, and the, the later specials, and we were talking about this before you came in, he found it interesting, and I did too, in the book that you talk about, I think it's uh, Life is Worth Losing, mm-hmm. where you thought even he had started to cross the line into a little bit. I was worried about him. I was worried about his heart and his soul. I was physically worried about his heart and all that anger, which is really not good for heart patients. And I was worried, like, has he really given up on all of us? Like, has he really given up on the species? Because guess what, Dad? I'm 40-something, and I get to be on this planet, hopefully for another 20 to 40 years. So could you root for us a little bit? Could you root for me? You know, and I felt a little left out. I never voiced that to my dad, because as you'll when you when you read the book, you'll find out we didn't do a lot of talking in our family about things like that or anything. But um, – but yeah, I was I was worried. I was worried about him. And, you know, I at one point I confronted him and I did say, you know, dad, if you've really given up on everything, 
then why do you bother going out on a stage and talking about this stuff? And he, he really took that to heart and really thought about it and eventually came, you know, said, you know, you're right. Um, I'm a broken hearted idealist. And if you scratch the surface of a cynic, you will find a broken hearted idealist. And he did in 1972 when McGovern lost, he knew it was all over. He never voted after that. And he just kind of checked out uh, on, and, and then that just increased over the decades with all the insanity going on in this planet. So, and you know, that position he had about being able to be outside of the species and the planet and look back, that gave him a lot of artistic freedom. And I understand that, you know, it's important to have that. And personally, he didn't give up on anybody or anyone. Individuals he loved, but he knew kind of this is a very interesting uh, biological experiment we've got going here as human beings. So he didn't like groups. That was and sure. definitely right. didn't like <laughs> groups. Right. Yeah, he said in some interview that everybody, if you meet them by themselves, they have a certain decency about them. Yeah. But if they go with one other person. <laughs> It's all it needs. It yeah. audience. Three. <laughs> We're fucked. Yeah. There's an, there's an interview on, online, which, of course, you've seen, uh, with Sonny Fox and the radio Sonny Fox, not the old one to Rama host Sonny Fox. Yes. Where he's talking about that very thing. And he asked him, do you really give up? Did you really give up? And he said that he just it was disappointment in, in, in what happened to the species. It is that disappointment. We, we, we went in the wrong direction. We did. We did. And, uh, yeah. But how many, uh, you know, how many artists get to have that many acts in their life? That that he went from look at the, look at the it's a it's it's a great point and um, I think it is what makes his story so rich his particular story and um, and I think it's inspiring for any kind of uh, person who's uh, an artist or you know person in the performing arts or whatever because you 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 can evolve you can reinvent and you should because look at how rich it was for him each time he evolved he went deeper and his audiences got bigger so always different always and, different and prolific i mean nobody oh, yeah. nobody the man was writing all the time more material and consummate and, craftsman yeah uh, I just had one last question. Does it bother you when so many things on the internet are attributed yes. to George Carlin? It drives are... me fucking crazy. <laughs> it's everywhere. <sighs> and, what can you do about and it? I can't, I, at first, I wanted to correct every single one of them, and then I realized I will never win this battle. So what I do now is if I find a really egregious one, like uh, earlier this year, one of the neocon... Um, uh, neo, big neocon groups, like the Heritage something or others... Uh, took one of my dad's quotes, which is about how business, the owners of this country, uh, and, and I don't know the whole, the whole quote, but if you guys go find you know, the owners of the country, George Carlin, he's got a whole bit about big business. And they changed the word business to government – and they put it up as a poster meme on Facebook. I heard it completely about changes the whole fucking it's meaning the bit of the, the owners of America don't want to don't yes. want an informed uh, society. They don't. They, that's yes. why education sucks. Yes. Right. Oh, no, it's not even about the it's education one. It's like a, it's it's the one about business or so. Anyway, the business right. owners or, or yes. So anyway, um, so what I do now is when I see something like that, is I sick the fans 
on those people. And I, I go onto social media and I have this army because they are rabid, loyal fans of my dad's. And, and they've become fans of mine. And I'm just so touched by how much they want to protect me and all of that. And I sick these legions of George Carlin fans on these neocons and these Christians and all this stuff. And uh, it's very fun to watch then. It's a big show. Last question. You got a last question? Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm so afraid now. Do you like to suck cock? <laughs> Not as much as I used to. No. <laughs> well, like if it was a comedian. <laughs> oh, definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> what if he? <laughs> what if he was a voice in a Disney car? <laughs> Still a fan? She's thinking about it. What character? <laughs> Only a lead. Yeah, it would have to be. Only a lead. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, wait, no. Well, that might work out. Yeah. Here's, oh, a, okay. here's an impossible question to answer before we go. Uh, favorite, you can't pick it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Favorite routine? Can you, can you boil it down to one? I love the little goofy shit me too he would do so uh you know uh the the dogs and cats bit Mm -hmm. there's just moments in that Mm -hmm. um uh but also when he like the last i don't know how many hbo shows when he would come out and do the declaration line he would come out and, you know, the first one was, you know, uh, the, you know, the people, why is it the people who are against abortion, the people who want to want to fuck right, anyway, right. that, you know, like these big declaration lines, right. loved that too, but really loved the goofy shit. Okay. Favorite bit, segmented walking farts. That's a great one. <laughs> That's a great one. Because I'm, you got to love a fart joke. <laughs> he did. He made them into an art form. He did. I, I love, you know, the what is it? The National Pancake? This, this oh, message from the fuck National Waffles. Fuck yeah. Waffles. Fucking A, man. Yeah, one of my I, favorite things. I love the Bad Hair Day yeah. bit. I think that's on Carlin and Carnegie. Yeah, and, no. and, 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 you know, for, for larger bits, more satirical bits or more pointed bits, the, you mentioned, you referenced it before, the Two Commandments, yeah. taking the Ten Commandments, and uh, he boils it. It's brilliant. It's, it's real, real artistry. And then, and then there's Modern Man. Modern Man is which great, is, too. You know, I mean, it's it's just incredible. And I, I loved his line where he said, God is the leading cause of death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you know, and I could only get away with this on your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. You know the shooting in the church? Yes. My dad had a bit about it. He kept saying, I can't wait until there's guns in churches and they start shooting those motherfuckers. Now, of course, he would have not have been happy that it was a white racist in a black church. But the minute that news story came up, I thought, Dad, you fucking got what you wanted. <laughs> I mean, and it breaks my heart. And yet I thought he he always predicted this shit. He predicted a lot yeah. of things. He always predicted this shit. He was so prophetic. So. Um, it's the most distasteful thing I've said in a while, but I did. I thought of my dad when that news story came up. Well, you could get away with that yeah. on this show. Of course, this I could. Show, because, this show because is all Gilbert, bad taste. Because Gilbert just asked me to suck his fucking dick. So. <laughs> it's becoming a now, pattern on this now, show. What What made you give up sucking cock? Nothing. You, no. But when you're in your fifties, you're like Jesus. I've had enough of this. <laughs> right. <laughs> Goddamn Pfizer. I'm sure 
I'm sure men going down on their wives gets a little old at 50. Well, we <laughs> nothing to say to that. I'm a newlywed. So glad I made Gilbert laugh. So you did. I'm going to plug the book. Thank you. Yes, plug the, yes. You, you plug oh, the book. You're one. the host. Oh, okay. Uh, the book is called... Uh, a Carlin a Home. Carl- well, <laughs> see, that's the second part of the book. <laughs> I don't read this shit. <laughs> a Carlin Home Companion. Growing up with George... And our guest today was uh, George Carlin's pride and joy and someone who doesn't suck cock anymore. No, I didn't yeah. say ever. <laughs> I didn't say ever. So you will be willing to suck I'm cock. I'm willing to suck cock. You of are? Course. So, So Kelly Carlin's daughter... Is still willing Kelly to Carlin's suck. daughter? Yeah, yo, Kelly Carlin. George Carlin's daughter, Kelly Carlin, I want to announce right here and now, is still ready to suck cock. My husband will be so happy about that news. <laughs> He's got the kilt. It's perfect. So this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre at the Friars Club, where Kelly Carlin... Is willing to suck cock. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly I was gonna, Carlin. I was going to end on a softer note. And say that it's okay to eat pancakes for dinner. <laughs> and that shows the contrast of this show. I love you both. Yes. Thank you, Kelly. Thank but you. I say it's treat. okay to suck cock, too. For the fifth time. Yeah. Thanks, Kelly. I say this to a lot of guests, but you really were a sport. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful for smoggy skies, insecticided grain, for strip-mined mountains' majesty above the asphalt plain. America, America, man sheds his waste on thee. And hides the pines with billboard signs From sea to oily sea